friends, colleagues, and Mary Janes, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by Dr. Zachary Walsh. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. We're really excited to have you down. Um, yeah, so so Zach, uh, what are we going to be talking about today? What's your research? What are your What's your expertise? And I, I just came off your talk, so I'm, I know a lot of the spoilers already, but uh, let us know what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, well, my research is broadly on cannabis, uh, looking at cannabis in a variety of populations in a bunch of different contexts. I think what interests me now is how do we sort of re-envision cannabis in a post-prohibition environment. So, so many of the effects that we have attributed to cannabis, so many of the risks are at least somewhat confounded by this really uh, tight social net that's been that's been cast around cannabis users. And, and what does it mean now that it's broad? What does it mean for um, you know standards of cannabis use? There's new products that are available. Uh, the social context is changing dramatically, and, and so many of the effects, I believe, are socially mediated. So what does cannabis look like now? And now might be early. Uh, I think we're still in the normalization process. But what are we going to see from cannabis um, 10 years from now? And and, you know, it's a plant with a very long history of human use, thousands of years. This last iteration has been a bit of a blip, um, you know, this prohibition era. So what are we going to get back to? And, and what does it mean now that we have all these new products and commercialization? I think there's just sort of an endless world of possibilities for understanding the new landscape of cannabis. Yeah, absolutely. When you're using the term prohibition, like, obviously, I think that harkens back to a lot of people. The history buffs will think back to alcohol prohibition, and and that was significantly shorter than this prohibition that we've been talking about with marijuana. Um, is do we expect, or do you expect there to be uh, a different normalization process, or do you expect it to be largely similar um, compared to when alcohol was deprohibited? <laughs> you know, I think when when the prohibition of alcohol ended, um, most people had uh, had at least a recollection or a, a generational recollection. So at least their parents would have been around when there was legal alcohol and they would have, you know, there would have been a normalized period prior to prohibition. What we have now is people who have had cannabis be illegal their whole life and it was illegal for their parents' life as well. So there's been a real break. Uh, and also, you know, the, the long history of cannabis use, um, medically, uh, I think, you know, they did a good job of rebranding cannabis as marijuana. And so while there was widespread medical use of cannabis medications, and certainly if we go to China and India, we have a long, long, millennia-long history of use. But for North America, I think it still seems new, this idea of cannabis, even though, um, you know, we've somehow forgotten that this was in, in many over-the-counter medications and was widely used prior to the 1920s. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it is different. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, I mean, we're actually very close to the one-year anniversary of Canada legalizing marijuana. I think we're actually a week off. From, mm -hmm. It was the 17th, I think, yep. of, of 2018, right? Yep. Uh, so this is kind of nice that we're doing like a little like a one-year yeah. celebration here mm -hmm. by having you all talking about one it. Year later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is perfect. I mean, talking about this stuff, is, it's really interesting. I, and I kind of I understand uh, the perspective of, you know, looking at how it's normalized in our society because, I mean, I still, I think a lot of people are dealing with this kind of weird feeling of, you know, pulling out a joint or, or you know, using marijuana in the open and being okay with it, right? I think it's still kind of yeah. like an icky feeling Can, yeah. you have under, un, like underneath the, oh yeah, it's legal. Yeah. Uh, sort of the use of cannabis in social settings is still maybe not 100%. Endorsed? Yeah, it's just like yeah, socially accepted. Like, is it socially acceptable well, We yet, still see or? a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of strange uh, residue from prohibition. For instance, mm -hmm. you're allowed to grow your cannabis plants now, but uh, they have to be outside of the sight of children. 
So you can get uh, you can get a fine if your cannabis plants are being grown in a way that someone could see them. I think they have to be out of sight of everyone, but really I think it's children that they're protecting, which is odd, you know? I mean, it's a green leafy plant. <laughs> the idea that someone would see it yeah. and that would cause, it really speaks to the stigma, right? No, yeah. one, you don't have to hide your wine. Mm -hmm. So I think there's still a lot of, there's still a lot of hiding. And, and it's interesting, you know, I talk with my students and many of my students are medical cannabis users and, and um, I think there's still a, a reluctance to to talk about it openly. And, you know, even with colleagues, you know, people say, oh, boy, it was like a two martini day or I can't wait to get home and have a drink. Yeah. But if I say, you know, I can't wait to get home and hit the bong, people are like, wow, you're really you're really pushing the envelope there. <laughs> Am I? I don't know. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, people are still doing exactly that. You know, they're, they're using marijuana after work or they're you know using it to relax. And we'll talk about why people use it a little bit later, I imagine, too. But I mean, yeah, I completely see that. And there's less likely to say, yeah, I'm going to go smoke a joint or hit a bong or take an edible after work. <laughs> I wonder when it will become, you know, to the same degree of like, you know, I can't wait to have a beer when I get home. Well, you know, one, one place where we really see it is, is in some research that we're doing on parenting in cannabis. So, you know, being from the Okanagan, we're wine culture. And, and it's funny, I, I, I think it's perhaps inappropriate how enmeshed the whole idea of parenting and alcohol is so there's you know mummy's juice or you'll see you'll <laughs> yeah. see pictures of like the baby's got the bottle the mom's got the wine it's like this is mom's juice that's baby's juice and the whole idea that it's okay yeah. but you know if you're if you're at a, a function with other parents and there's kids around you know people say safety meeting and everyone has to go outside and hide uh to use cannabis and then right. the kids say where were you and they're like oh what do, why do you smell funny there's a bonfire next door is one thing i've heard or... <laughs> and I, it's it's yeah it's real funny but it's also like i wonder what kind of message is that sending i think mm -hmm. it's important that we have one, one of the real opportunities we have with legalization is a chance to have open dialogue mm -hmm. with kids around around cannabis with there people have no problem drinking a beer around their kids and saying, this is for adults. This is not for you. And yeah. that's not even controversial. No one thinks that they're going to put those, you know, those little, uh, sleeves on their beer to make it look like it's a Coca-Cola unless you're drinking in public. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but no one does that to hide it from their kids, but right. yeah. we still hide it from our, we still hide cannabis use from our kids. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately I think people do a quite a poor job of it because on, on there, there's, you know, it's equivocal on one hand, they're like, Oh, you don't do it around the kids. On the other hand, it's not so bad, so I'm not going to do a good job of hiding it. Right, right. So what it becomes is this standard where people say, uh, yeah, my kids know probably, but I never talk to them about it. And the message that people are sending is this is something that we don't talk about. Right. So I'm going to use cannabis and I'm going to keep it secret. Don't query me about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know that kids learn from modeling. So then right. the, the situation becomes cannabis is something I, I hide too. I, yeah. So everyone's going you know to one person goes to the attic one person goes to the basement <laughs> i was just about to say yeah everybody's dipping off into their rooms to yeah. you know to open up a window imbibe and, and, that, and that's really where it's not that that's hopefully one of the one of the good effects of legalization is that it allows for frank discussion of mm -hmm. cannabis use yeah absolutely yeah. now I, a part of me wonders if uh some of this has to do with the for lack of a better word, maybe the word that we're looking for, the war on drugs and, and the demonization of mm -hmm. um, cannabis as, you know, this, especially a gateway, I think this is the way that most people um, have historically thought of it. And so I, I would love to get your thoughts on whether... Um, yeah, I haven't heard someone refer to it as a gateway drug in a long time. It's, yeah. It's, it still comes up, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. if, if you want to find, because the toxicity of cannabis is very low, the evidence for negative consequences is... 
I mean, there's been no shortage of fun. We talk about the shortage of funding for cannabis research, but there's never been a shortage of funding if you want to focus it on harms. Mm -hmm, right. I mean, basically, there's uh, there's been a, a big prize dangling in front of every scientist. If you just find something really terrible about cannabis, a lifetime of grants awaits you. <laughs> um, and they really haven't found it. But certainly, the, so if cannabis in and of itself is not so bad, maybe it's bad because it leads to something else. Right, so yeah. that's where we really get the gateway hypothesis. I think the best research has pretty conclusively determined that there are personality level vulnerabilities to substance use writ large. Mm -hmm. um, and those underlie you know, vulnerability to a variety of substances and you're gonna start with the most readily available. If you wanna talk about the true gateway drugs that are maybe, and I'm not uh, necessarily a fan of, of brain-based explanations for behavior in general and for substance use. I mean, I think certainly I, I would implicate the brain in most behavior. Um, but, you know, if you're looking for something that's going to trigger those pathways that are just going to facilitate later addiction, alcohol and tobacco are the, really the true gateways. Mm -hmm. What I think interesting is seeing the gateway hypothesis sort of reversed where cannabis is being seen as a substitute uh, for other substances. So a gateway out of it, or perhaps a gateway to uh, rational drug policy where now with the legalization of cannabis, we're going to see a lot of the, uh, a lot of the fuel taken out of the war on drugs. Um, you know, we have opioids are in this regulated area, um, and most illegal opioids are now being supplanted by pharmaceutical opioids. So that's sort of out of the war on drugs. And I think about drugs that are frankly illegal, people are reconsidering psychedelics. So it, the war on drugs becomes reduced to perhaps a war on cocaine. Um, so perhaps it's a gateway to more rational drug policy where we can look at really managing drugs in a way that facilitates public health and, and that uh, provides access for people who struggle. Uh, and maybe it's a gateway for people who are looking for a substitute. So there's growing evidence that, you know, um, cannabis can be a substitute for alcohol. And we know there's so many social problems that are associated with overuse of alcohol. So is cannabis a substitute for alcohol? Can it mitigate alcohol-related problems? Because we know that alcohol problems uh, really uh, are so much worse at certain levels of drinking. So a couple drinks is fine. Uh, binge drinking is where we see all the problems. So can, is someone less likely to get to that level of a binge if they're smoking cannabis? We have some self-report that suggests that, that it slows down drinking. Although, you know, if you just ask people, did you drink, did you use cannabis? You'll see yes and yes, but yeah. we haven't really looked at granular level how much. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a gateway, but maybe it's a gateway out of some of our problematic attitudes towards cannabis, mm -hmm. towards drugs more broadly. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I see two different things when I look at alcohol and, and, and cannabis because I don't think anybody's ever suggested that alcohol has a lot of medical benefits uh, from the <laughs> get-go. Uh, whereas cannabis, or maybe they did whenever it was well, during prohibition, out. they yeah. absolutely did. People yeah. got doctors' prescriptions for alcohol. <laughs> and, and so, what was uh, what to was, treat their alcoholism? Yeah, <laughs> probably. But also, I mean, they probably—I mean, it probably made them feel better, or maybe reduced anxiety and depression sure. at that point because they were using it as an escape, possibly. Mm -hmm. uh, so. That's my lack of knowledge. And so what's the overlap then, I guess, in what we're, what we're seeing now as what we're prescribing or what researchers are seeing as the reason why people are using uh, cannabis versus what they were saying back whenever they were, the alcohol prohibition was going on? Well, if you look at benzodiazepines, um, you know, things like uh, Ativan, Valium, widely used drugs, a lot of sleep aids, they operate on a somewhat similar uh, pathway to alcohol. Uh, we don't know the exact mechanisms for either, but they, they seem to be operating on a, in, a, in, a, in a similar manner. And the advantage of benzodiazepines over alcohol is that they kind of have a ceiling where people don't get 
as messed up as they do on alcohol. They're right. not as reinforcing, so people don't develop the same kind of problems with them. Uh, but they have some of the same effects in terms of relieving anxiety. So is, you know, you get into some, I think, some pretty deep questions about whether short-term relief of anxiety is a valid uh, pursuit. Mm-hmm. And you might say, no, deal. That doesn't seem to be something that's going to be acceptable for a lot of people. A lot of people, when, they, when they're looking uh, for a medication, they're not necessarily just looking for something to treat uh, a progressive disease. They're looking for short-term symptom relief, short-term sim- relief of symptoms of pain, yep. short-term relief of symptoms of anxiety and worry. Does cannabis work for that? Um, yes. Does alcohol work for that? Yes. Do benzodiazepines work for it? Yeah, a lot of things work for it. So then the question becomes, how effective is it? What is the course of action? Mm-hmm. And what are the side effects? The reason why benzodiazepines, I believe, are preferred to alcohol is because they have a, less of a downside. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is the downside of cannabis use as an anxiolytic? Uh, I think that remains to be seen in a lot of ways. Does it relieve short-term anxiety? I don't know. You know, if you were to ask some people, they would say, well, you have to look at animal models. Well, why? Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you just ask people if they're anxious and do they feel less anxious when they smoke cannabis? That seems like a valid uh, approach to me. It's not yeah. it's not the be all and end all, yeah. but you know, anxiety is largely subjective. So yeah. if you have subjective relief of anxiety, I would say you have relief of anxiety. Mm-hmm. So if you ask a lot of people who have anxiety, does cannabis relieve your anxiety? Yeah, in the short term. So what are the other questions then? Does it make it worse in the long term? Okay. So are you getting half an hour of relief from anxiety followed by weeks of exacerbated anxiety. In that case, it's not a very good anxiolytic, although it might provide the illusion of being so yeah. because you may not, you know, through, through normal learning processes, you may not associate the long-term exacerbation of anxiety uh, with the cannabis, whereas you attribute the short-term relief. So that right. would make it a bad anxiolytic. Mm-hmm. We don't really have the research uh, to definitively answer that, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly a lot of people are finding that it is a good short-term anxiolytic and uh, that the side effects are tolerable compared to other anxiolytics. Yeah. One of the big ones is withdrawal, of course. Mm-hmm. So if you have something that reduces anxiety in the short term, does it exacerbate it when you stop using? That's one of the big problems with benzodiazepines. Uh, they're meant for short-term use. We know that many people use them for the long term. People take benzodiazepines for their whole life, a lot of them, uh, even though the doctor says no, but they continue filling the prescriptions for whatever reason. <laughs> um, and then you get into a pretty serious withdrawal that's marked by really pr- pronounced anxiety and sleep disturbance. Does cannabis produce a withdrawal syndrome like that? To some extent, I think anything that's going to relieve anxiety in the short term is going to exacerbate anxiety upon withdrawal. But the cannabis withdrawal, I think, in terms of anxiety, is uh, in many ways preferable to the benzodiazepine withdrawal. Mm-hmm. I, I think the real question is going to be answered by comparative efficacy trials. Uh, and we don't have those yet. Right. So we need a placebo, we need a benzodiazepine condition, and then a cannabis condition, and preferably uh, some kind of edible uh, cannabis that's more directly uh, comparable to uh, in to a benzo. Mm-hmm. And then I think we'll be able to know, what does that mean for someone who's on them for a month? What does it mean for the, on them for a year? And sometimes that's what you need. You say, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm having this tremendous life stress. Yes. yes, I can do mindfulness. Yes, I can do cognitive restructuring and all of those things are great. Mm-hmm. But I also would like to take something, please, doctor, yeah. right now uh, that's going to shorten it or that's going to allow me to engage in the kind of behavioral therapies that are not going to have negative side effects and that are going to have a lasting effect. So does cannabis facilitate participation in that? Does cannabis interfere with participation in those kind of therapies? Those are the questions I'm interested in, is how do we integrate cannabis with other psychotherapies in the treatment of anxiety? Mm -hmm. 
Right, yeah, because I mean, the general trend in research is to kind of pair, you know, these psychological treatments, so these in interventions with some sort of medication mm -hmm. to get the most effective responses, right? So would marijuana deter somebody from actually continuing to do, you know, CBD or, or um, mindfulness or those kind of practices? Everybody has their, you know, their biased opinions as to what happens when you smoke weed mm -hmm. or you smoke marijuana you know, it makes you mellow and you kind of don't want to do anything else. That might not be the case. And depending on what types of weed and, and these mm -hmm. stigma and you know, avoiding these stigmas and biases that people have already pre-existing, um, what types of, you know, doses, how, how effectively do you treat that? When do you use them? Those kind of things would be really interesting to see across a long-term or longitudinal long-term study. Uh, same thing with repeated measures, right? In doing repeated measures, how mm -hmm. much you use it in, in a week or on a daily mm -hmm. basis, those things as you say, need to be fleshed out so we can actually have a really good conversation about that. You know, I think cannabis has been with us for thousands of years. One thing that we find is that people like cannabis. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> I mean, the prohibitions were insane. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, they were terribly punitive. They were harsh. They made it difficult to access. And what did we find? People continued to use cannabis despite these prohibitions. Mm -hmm. So cannabis is here. So the question becomes for me then not uh, sh yes or no cannabis because well, no, <laughs> and say no. And then what does that do? What is the no. clinical implication of that? Clinical implication of that is that we alienate people who are using cannabis and finding it effective. Sure. So I think a better approach is to say how. Mm -hmm. What is the best way to use cannabis? What is the least good way to use cannabis? I mean, I have some, I have some guesses around that. I have some suspicions. I'd love to hear those, yeah. Um, well, you know, one thing we're really interested in right now, there's, there's this long tradition, and it's gaining popularity. It, it, it sort of seems trendy, but I think there's something to it with ganja yoga. Uh, so there's a lot, number of yoga studios right now that are offering. I never even uh, heard of this. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it, yeah. it has a long practice in India. Okay. Um, where people would use cannabis together with meditation, together yeah. with yogic practices, right. and it's gaining a lot of popularity. Not surprisingly, on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah. There's been a there's been a book about it, uh, and we're that's one of our one of the studies that one of my graduate students is doing now is we're starting with a broad survey of practitioners of Ganja Yoga to see how do they experience it how is it different than yoga on its own how is and we're also including mindfulness practitioners so what is meditation with cannabis without yeah um you know certain schools would would absolutely say that you know you are corrupting your your meditation practice if you're using it with cannabis others sure. would yeah. say that yeah that's a natural aid yeah so how do we refine these processes and and how do we determine what is the best practice and what does ganja yoga do and how is it is it better than yoga on its own is it worse than yoga on its own and i think the 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 end point for this is to develop a kind of an intervention where where we where we set some guidelines for what is mindful cannabis use mm -hmm. right now physicians are left with a choice if they're if someone says i want to use cannabis for anxiety they say yes or no mm -hmm. they can't say well here's a program yeah. uh that has been you know I'm, I'm not saying that this is great or whatever but if you decide you want to use cannabis here's a way that some people have suggested in a thoughtful uh manner to use manner. cannabis yeah. That's, yeah. that's gonna that might be helpful yeah so yeah. I, I think that's very interesting how do we how do we harness the potential of cannabis and integrate it with with other practices and you mentioned uh, I think this is really interesting too is that it's not like alcohol in the sense where there's usually one way that you take alcohol and it's you drink it uh, marijuana and, and uh, cannabis there's so many different ways at which you can consume this right so you know uh, joints smoking it bongs edibles, Go, like, the list goes on. What do you think the most optimal approach for, you know, at least measuring this in, in, in your research? Are you getting, I mean, is the idea that you're uh, giving them certain amounts of edibles? Are you asking them to smoke a certain amount of joints, you know, take a bong hit? Like, what is the approach? Yeah, well, well how, yeah, how do you direct a patient to use yeah. cannabis? What, yeah. what are you mm -hmm. saying? Especially ones that haven't used the, the, those types of contractions mm. either, right? Like bongs or pipes or whatever it is, you know, how do you 
compare against those things and, and, and you know, avoid pre-existing experience with that. So unexperienced users too, right? Well, if you look at benzodiazepines as an example, there's a number of different benzodiazepines. They're, they're quite similar in many ways, and they differ in terms of pharmacokinetics and dynamics. So what is the, um, what is the length of, on, how, how quick is the onset? How long is the half-life? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see some of those differences you know, with different cannabis concoctions. So an edible, if you're having an acute anxiety attack, you may not want to wait 45 minutes for the edible to come on. So in that case, it might be something where um, you're going to want to use a vaporized, uh, vaporized cannabis. I'm not sure that smoked cannabis is going to have a whole lot of advantages over vaporized cannabis. I think, you know, from a therapeutic perspective, there's all the lung irritation and throat irritation that may not be there with vaporized. And I mean vaporized herbal cannabis, not the vapes that we're yeah. starting to see different problems with. Um, so, you know, it depends on the indication. If you need a rapid onset, then a vaporizer. If you want something that's going to last longer, though, an edible has a course of about five or six hours, whereas a vaporizer is only going to last a few hours. So if you're someone who struggles with PTSD-related nightmares, uh, then you probably want an edible. If it's panic attacks, you might want something vaporized. Um, does it lead to avoidance? I mean, I think that's a concern as a behaviorally oriented psychologist. We don't want to facilitate uh, experiential avoidance. Mm-hmm. So, right. you know, and that's where I think, you know, integrating it with different uh, different therapeutic approaches is important. So would I tell someone who has a panic attack, you know, use cannabis and then just watch TV until it goes away? Right. Well, that seems like avoidance. But is yeah. it, see if you can take a little puff off the vaporizer and then sort of move towards the anxiety. Is it something that becomes tolerable mm. as you expose yourself and then eventually you can do the exposure without the cannabis? So, I mean, right. those are open questions. That, yeah. that, that Those are the things that really interest me. Yeah, you're not wanting to take over different uh, adaptive coping strategies mm. uh, because then at that point it might almost become a mal- maladaptive coping strategy of course. in essence, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, there's tons of literature on what's effective coping for certain situations, mm. different stressors. Uh, you saying, you know, taking that and just creating that one, uh, you know, coping strategy would, would be maladaptive in the end yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think we want to talk about cannabis-assisted therapies rather than cannabis as the therapy. Right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if people are taking cannabis to continue avoiding behavior, somebody has social anxiety disorder, and that's an area we see a lot of cannabis use in social anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. Are you taking cannabis to help you um, get out and socialize? Yeah. Or are you taking cannabis because it makes it tolerable to stay in the basement and play video games? Right. Those are two very yeah. different profiles, same drug. Absolutely. I find it really fascinating fascinating that we, you know, and I, I greatly obviously appreciate us having this conversation, but I find it almost deeply ironic that we're having to have this conversation when we wouldn't be having this conversation about benzodiazepines, for example, because that's just the way it is. You take the drug and then you do the therapy. Like nobody's advocating for just one and not the other. And so it's almost, um, I don't know, historically rooted maybe that we even have to have this conversation to say, we're not saying that this is the only thing this is the only drug that you should be using and and you should avoid all other strategies no it's bananas it is well you know there's no there's a lot of there's more uncertainty than certainty when it comes to cannabis research you know there's there's certainly more knots than rope but if there's one thing that we do know it's that the stigma around cannabis the concerns around cannabis are not tied to its relative risks Mm -hmm. that they are culturally determined and that they're born of prejudice and outright racism and xenophobia. So that's where that's where the war on cannabis comes from, and we can clearly trace those historical roots. Um, yeah, there's that 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 train is never late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, uh, our opinions or the way that we perceive marijuana since it's become legalized. I think like it's it, we talked a bit at the beginning about the idea of you know still not really being fully comfortable you know smoking in public or you know consuming marijuana or even growing it in any visible areas. So, I mean, have you 
done any research where or as have you read any research that's on you know what uh people's opinions are on marijuana use now and and how they're interacting with it are people using it differently now because it's legalized um are, are people increasing their, their amounts of use the, the rates of use of marijuana or is it somewhat staying the same it's a little early to tell and there's this this big confound um at least in bc where the legalization of cannabis has resulted in reduced access um, because the gray market dispensaries have largely closed and they have not yet been replaced by the legal market. Mm-hmm. So it's a little early to see. Um, I mean, we've really seen a dramatic softening of public opinion towards cannabis over the last decade, a lot of it fueled by the recognition that this is a medicine and that for some people it improves their quality of life and particularly for people with whom we have easy sympathy. So people with chronic diseases, people with, I mean, really the medical cannabis movement as we know it came out of the HIV AIDS movement Mm -hmm. and uh, advocacy there. So we have to remember the roots of it. And, you know, then the next group where it was really uh, identified as sympathetic were these kids with these intractable childhood epilepsies. You know, when when we think about what was the big turning point that I saw was um, the Weeds documentary on CNN, or Mm -hmm. the Weed documentary on CNN, where Sanjay Gupta said, I was wrong about cannabis. And he doubled down on it and said, I was wrong. I was misinformed. And this was watched by so many millions of people. And there's this uh, young girl whose uh, development is just absolutely devastated by uh, Dravet syndrome. And she gets treated with CBD, and, and it's, it's a miracle cure. Now, that's for a small, that's not a sizable portion of medical cannabis users. Right. But all of a sudden, just about every state had a few kids like that, and there it became untenable to completely prohibit medical cannabis. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was a turning point. The next turning point, I think, was, was PTSD, where more and more veterans were coming forward. And, and you know, we have this terrible crisis with suicide and veterans, particularly in the U.S., but in Canada as well. Mm-hmm. And so when veterans were saying, this is giving me my life back, this is letting me get a good night's sleep, this is letting me live, we don't have the strong empirical support for that. But the anecdote and the advocacy uh, is creating the space where we can start to look for that empirical support. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'd like to think that science drives policy, but often it's it's serendipity and it's and it's uh, the bravery of advocates and the chances that people were taking that it gave us the room mm-hmm. to do the science yeah absolutely so I have a question actually about the science what does an experiment in your lab look like like if I was coming in to participate what am I what am I signing up for uh, well you know it varies quite a bit uh, I, I feel like you're probably asking about uh, the studies that we do with cannabis administration. And, yeah. And the main study we've done with that has been uh, PTSD trial. Okay. So in that case, we're trying to make it as naturalistic as possible. And we so we provide people with a vaporizer mm-hmm. and we give them uh, cannabis in, in two gram vials. So they get a, a week's supply and then they come to get refilled and, and they're allowed up to two grams a day. So they get seven two-gram vials that they use in the vaporizer. But when they come into the lab, we want to make sure they know how to use the vaporizer. Mm-hmm. And some of our um, some of our participants are naive to cannabis. You know, we excluded people who are using cannabis a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of them had some experience, but some were naive. So we had to train them how to use a vaporizer and how to smoke cannabis. <laughs> and we really wanted to test the limits. So mm-hmm. in the lab, if they're going to have a negative cannabis experience, which, you know, the risks are pretty small. But when it comes to acutely, the risk is an anxiety attack. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So we wanted to... Um, Make sure that people got a high dose. We didn't want them to get their first high dose at home. We right. wanted them to do it in the lab. Oh, interesting. So we have a procedure where we get people to to really, really uh, hit the vaporizer pretty hard <laughs> in the lab. 
Uh, and then we have a reclining chair, and we try to make a comfortable environment. So a it's good dim on, lit. Get some popcorn. Well, they have net, they, we have <laughs> yeah. an iPad with Netflix. Beautiful. Perfect. Yeah, so yeah. they can choose their comedy. Or I love it. They can um, watch a horror movie. They can watch a horror movie, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, so, so, so I think what we're seeing in the lab in terms of campus administration is you're going to see vaporization. Mm-hmm. There's, no, sense, there's yeah. no real benefit, unless you're trying to study the uh, differences with combusted cannabis versus vaporized. I don't think therapeutically there's a known benefit to, mm-hmm. to combusting. I don't hear anyone say that. So you're going to see vaporizers. If you're looking at, at, at careful dosing, mm-hmm. I think the volcano vape is sort of the state of the art. That's the one where it blows it into a bag. Oh, I've never even seen it before. Yeah, so it's it's an active mechanism that has a little fan that vaporizes the cannabis and then fills it into a plastic bag. And that way you can control dosage more clearly because you're not getting all the side stream smoke. Right. Um, So there are some mechanisms for delivering it in a reliable way where you can control Mm -hmm. uh, dosage, et cetera. And then, uh, you know, in in our case, we we were just training people on how to use the cannabis. We wanted them to use it uh, ad lib uh, at home. Uh, In a controlled manner too, right, because you're doing it. Yeah, yeah, and you know one of the concerns in, in our study, the initial design, uh, we were we were following a, a design that was being used in the in the U.S. where uh, there was a third a third stage of the study where people got all their cannabis back, so that way they thought <laughs> that people wouldn't wouldn't you know everybody would say they used all their cannabis every day and and because they'd be stashing it right, uh, right. but we thought no that's not going to happen it didn't happen people brought us back all kinds of cannabis yeah. and you don't have to and the 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 ethics board wasn't happy with us repackaging used cannabis to be able they're like you can't give this back to people after they you know it could be contaminated it could just be dirty whatever right, yeah um so yeah they're honest I, it's it's funny i really appreciate you answering that question i know it kind of puts you on the spot but i i really want to highlight the fact that you know i think people even still after all this conversation are probably like how the hell does anybody study cannabis and the and the answer is very carefully like mm-hmm. we're not you know people in your lab are not Dicking around and getting people high, like I mean, maybe they are, but like they're, they're not. But not during the lab time. Yeah, not during lab time. Off be. hours, maybe. Yeah. But but I guess what I'm getting at is that there's a very careful procedure, and and you know we're be, you're we're being scientists about this. Right? Oh yeah, well you know it's a real it's a real challenge, like in any science, to balance control with. With external validity, mm-hmm. so I mean, you can keep people in a lab and, and give them cannabis, or you could even inject TH. You could even give them intravenous THC. But how much is that like what people actually do? Not very much. Mm-hmm. And then you wonder, well, how much is it like? Uh, we know that cannabis effects are often context dependent. Mm-hmm. So getting high with uh, someone, you know, the TA from your intro psych class <laughs> in a, on the third floor in some weird room is a lot different than hanging out with your friends. So yeah. if you're trying to find out why do people use cannabis and then you take them into a weird lab with fluorescent lights <laughs> and they have to take a predetermined amount of cannabis and then they answer mood, how do you feel? Anxious, crappy. It's mm-hmm. like, well, let's see, cannabis makes people feel anxious and crappy. Right. Yeah, so yeah. really we want to see, you know, uh, we, we got to balance it with the real world validity of how do people actually use cannabis. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a, it is a challenge to get that experimental control, but still understand how is cannabis being used in the world? Because ultimately that's what we're interested in. We're not interested in how do people use cannabis in, in experiments. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple, two more questions before we kind of near the end here. Um, I want to touch on tolerance a bit because you're talking about, you know, this idea of teaching people to vape in the lab and things like that. Those are, you know, inexperienced, as you said, naive uh, cannabis users. When you, when you talk about, uh, you know, experienced cannabis users, there's, definitely a tolerance that's going on here right that i mean you it's just like alcohol uh tolerance i imagine in similar ways where you the more you use the substance the more tolerance you're going to be so i mean how uh do you kind of 
work with that within your research? How do you de determine? I mean, you said that you were not going to ex allow um, experienced users in a way. So what what do you consider an experienced user of marijuana? How where do you set the the, the draw the line? Well, in the clinical trial where we're trying to examine cannabis as a medication, uh, we really didn't want people who are already using cannabis because then what it becomes is a study of our cannabis versus the cannabis you're already using. So right. we're not going to get the good signal. Yeah. If we're looking more at the acute effects on cognition, decision-making, and stuff like that, um, typically, I mean, I guess one of the nice things about cannabis tolerance compared to alcohol tolerance is that it uh, develops and resolves much more quickly. Um, so it's really about three or four days. Mm. Uh, so, you know, if you ask someone to stay... Uh, free of cannabis, you know, if they're a regular cannabis user, if you ask them to stay free for 24 hours, uh, their tolerance will drop quite a bit. Then you face another issue, though, is that they may be irritable because they may be in cannabis withdrawal. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the answer is really to track their patterns of use. Mm. Um, and it's very tough to get, and this is something people are struggling with with the driving issue, is it's very hard to get any kind of objective measure of cannabis either intoxication or cannabis tone right so mm -hmm. it's really hard to tell where someone's at in terms of their cannabis tolerance uh, the availability of their cannabis receptors that we assume to underlie cannabis tolerance you know through down regulation and up regulation mm -hmm. um, so I think that that is a tough call and I think what, what we'll have to do is just you know probably do it with broad strokes and have different groups that are either experienced highly experienced or not or relatively naive and 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 keep as a covariate uh, time of last exposure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting. And it, I mean, that brings a lot of implications into, you know, driving under the influence and how we determine who is sufficiently uh, under the influence when it comes to smoking and their tolerance levels too, right? Are, should they be operating it if they're experienced and they have a little bit in their system versus someone, you know, that would have the same amount but is an inexperienced user? Uh, there's significant implications that that would have on people's safety. Well, the, you know, it's a big issue, really. Uh, and I think right now um, you have to have a behavioral correlate uh, together with some kind of a, an a, a objective index. Right. Because basically what we're doing, if, if we set a per se limit, a uh, mm -hmm. per se blood limit, and leave it just at a per se blood limit, yeah, that's basically criminalizing medical cannabis users. Right. Uh, you know, folks with PTSD, if you're using every night before bed mm -hmm. and you've been doing that for a while, you're going to have a positive... Uh, blood and saliva screen for cannabis. Mm -hmm. True, that's a really good point. The, the the last last question there, I guess, is like how we, how do you think we can create these kind of standard measures of marijuana use or uh, cannabis use? Because we have the you know the standard units of alcohol. You know, you have a, a pint of beer or a sleeve of beer, a pint of beer, sleeve sleeve of beer. I, they have it different terms across Canada and across <laughs> everywhere too. But it's a certain amount of ounces in beer. It's like mm -hmm. one. Smaller ounces of wine, a small glass of wine, a shot of like uh, hard hard bar, things like that. How do we do that with uh, marijuana? Like, how do you think? Because how do people first measure it in the in the first place? Well, right? we're not going to get there. Yeah, uh, we're not going to get that level of standardization. I mean, alcohol. We know the percentage alcohol by volume, and then mm -hmm. we know the amount of volume consumed because it's all consumed in the same way. Yeah. Uh, having said that, you know, I guess it depends on the speed, but we all know that a glass, even if, even if you know, three shots of vodka is the same as three beer, you know that downing three shots of vodka has a different effect than drinking three beer. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, there's yeah. limits to even what we can do with alcohol, and we, we like to point. be very standard when it comes to what's in the glass or what's in the pill, right. and we're less concerned about what's really important, which is what's going on at the site of action, what's going on in your brain, because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. we can't we can't standardize it there. Yeah. Three shots of vodka is very different for one person than another. Absolutely. But we're comfortable with those broad strokes because we recognize in the case of driving that alcohol is so problematic. Yes. So it's really about what is the real risk and what are we trying to do, 
and not getting caught up in the weeds, so to speak, of, <laughs> of refining the assessment. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think what we'll see eventually is a refined test, test of uh, cognitive, um, cognitive interference is someone, you know, it's almost like a roadside sobriety. I think that's going to yeah. be ultimately the best because yeah. we're not, we're not, we don't want people to not drive because they've consumed cannabis per se. We don't want people to be operating machinery when they're impaired. Yes. So let's measure mm -hmm. impairment. Let's not just measure what's taken in. Yeah, what's in the body. Yeah, yeah and it, it, if what's in the body is a decent index of impairment, as it is with alcohol, yeah. then fine. But if it's not, then we, we can't just force it. Yeah, yeah, we can't enforce something that we don't really show the results of. Yeah, impairment, just because right? it's reliable, it's yeah. not valid. Yeah, like we yeah. we know how much is in your body, so we're gonna we're gonna consider that the guideline. Yeah, we need it's kind of silly in the end. We know that reliability is is uh, is required for validity, but it's not yeah. it's not enough. So. Of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, Last, last question. <laughs> last, uh, just because this is perfect, we haven't asked it in a while because we usually do shorter episodes, but uh, what do you think is one of the most common myths uh, when it comes to marijuana use and cannabis use? I have to, can I have two? Awesome. Yes. Okay, so you can have two, five if you I want. I can have five. No, just two. <laughs> so the two most common myths about cannabis, particularly from a therapeutic perspective, the most common myth is that it's, it's garbage and it really doesn't do anything and people just want to get high. Mm -hmm. So that's not true. And then the second worst myth is that uh, it cures everything. Mm, that marijuana cures cancer yeah, and yeah. chronic diseases yeah I mean there's some signals for a variety of things the yeah. endocannabinoid system is so ubiquitous yeah. that uh, you can't throw anything out you can't say oh that's impossible yeah mm -hmm. but uh, you know I think one of the sad things about the war on drugs it's created this real partisanship where you either say you know natural cannabis is the only natural uber medicine that can cure everything and don't even talk to your doctor because all you need is to talk to the dispensary <laughs> operator yeah uh, on one side and the other side is you have physicians who are saying it's all garbage you just want to get high yeah and mm -hmm. both of those are are missed the mark by a by a lot absolutely yeah that's a really good myth i mean there's so i mean imagine there's so many there uh, with when it comes to illegal drugs and substances that are now legal, there's always going to be this growing period, and there's going to be these growing scars, I'm sure, uh, as with anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're probably just on at the tip of the iceberg in terms of everything that we're going to learn, and and certainly your work will be contributing heavily to you know future policies and and the way we interact with uh, cannabis. So that's really cool. I, I've I've had a really great time. I've learned quite a bit. Um, and I've been really appreciative of learning all of it. Uh, well, with that, then, we'll call it another episode. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Walsh, for joining us. We've had a great time. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode or enjoyed others like it, uh, give us a star, give us a review, leave us a note, tell us what you liked and what you didn't, uh, wherever you found it. You may have found this on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Um, so wherever you got it, just let us know. I guess that's everything, man. Yeah, that's I don't. I, I was just like, <laughs> I think I have more to say. Yeah, thanks for really, thanks for listening, and thanks for coming on again, Doctor yeah. Walsh. No, it was uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It was lots of fun. Awesome. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.